So words are powerful, but of course, words are also such a basic part of life, it's easy to just take it for granted. Let me read some words that were spoken by the great Ned Flanders of The Simpsons. Hi, diddly ho, neighborinos, or... Sorry is not just the most exciting board game ever devised. It's a word I need to hear from you. You're never bored painting the Lord. Spend less time on your back and more time on your knees. When you meet Jesus, be sure to call him Mr. Christ. Now what can I ding-dong diddly do for you? I don't know what response you have when you, if you watch The Simpsons, or and what response you might have if you even hear these words about Ned Fl- that Ned Flanders spoke, or you watch this portrayal of a Christian um, on a TV show like The Simpsons. And it's a caricature, right? And caricatures are meant to be exaggerated to make a point. Now, we could watch a character like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons and as Christians be outraged that this is not the truth of what a Christian is. And I think we would be a little bit too sensitive, personally, and we're missing the point in that the caricature, I believe, does accurately portray the worst of what Christian culture can demonstrate. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, obeying this commandment can't just be like being Ned Flanders, saying vague niceties about God and trying to be as proper as possible because Ned, Ned Flanders' Christianity really is a very weak, anemic Christianity that lacks power and his words lack, lack power. And it doesn't really, that kind of Christianity doesn't speak to the truth of the brokenness of life and also the power of God, the power of gospel to speak into that brokenness of life. God doesn't just call us to be nice and proper like Ned Flanders. God calls us to bring life to people through our words. And the ninth commandment shows that God created us with this desire for truth. Truth in the deepest sense. To be people who are truthful, to live truthfully, to seek the truth. And we will see, of course, that in Scripture we find that Jesus is the truth. But let's Take a quick look in scripture first about the power of words. Again, we take for granted that words are just a part of life. But God starts scripture by emphasizing the power of God's word itself. In Genesis 1, right, we start with there being chaos and void. And God speaks his word into this void to create. So verse 3 it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then in subsequent verses, right? Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Right? God's word creates, brings life. Verse 22, God blessed them and said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, and God said. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them. Verse 29, then God said. God's word over and over and over again. So God, Genesis 1, just, I mean, just to say that, it shows the creative power of words. And that, in fact, when we're talking about God, that his word is his power. 
that scripture equates those two. That his word, right, his word does not return void. You know, we use words so casually. Oh, whatever, we're just speaking. But God's word is his power. There is no differentiation between the two because when he speaks, things happen. And his word is not just his power, but it is associated with who he is, his character. Again, there's no difference between who he expresses himself to be through his words and who he actually is. Now, again, that's where we're different from God, right? We say all kinds of things about ourselves and yet does not necessarily match who we are. The emphasis we see here is God creating out of nothing through the power of his words and that God has this power through his words to bless and to command um, in, in this world. Now, even when we think of the word bless, right? And it's said here in Genesis 1, bless. We think of bless as just this very fluffy thing. I bless you. Bless your heart. You know, God bless you when you sneeze, right? It becomes this very, uh, I don't even know, again, very weak, anemic thing. Like, oh, I give you permission to do something. But God's blessing is not this fluffy thing, not this giving permission. It is God actively giving his power, his authority, his favor to people. And so we see John 1, right? Transitioning to Jesus. John 1, verses 1 through 5, or some portions of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We can so often, as Christians, emphasize the, the Word of God as the Bible, right? The Bible is super important. This is how we, how God has revealed himself to us to know who he is. And yet, we can, as Christians, worship the Bible more than Jesus. Then we've lost what a relationship with God is about. Jesus is the word of God, as it says in John 1. Jesus is the word of God. And the Bible, the word of God, points to Jesus, the word of God. That's what John 1 tells us. And so we have to remember that again and again, that it is this relationship with Jesus who is life, who is the word of God, through which we find grace and forgiveness and light and truth. There is great power in the word of God, Jesus. Now, we are his image bearers, right? Genesis 1 tells us that as well. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So there's power in our words as his image bearers. And if we look at Genesis 1, his image bearers being made like God, to ask, what does it mean to be his image bearers most directly in the context of what God had just did in creating the world, shows us that to be his image bearers means that we as humans are made to create, to rule, to bless through the power of words, just like God did. We were created to create, rule, and bless with our words, just like God did. And that, I think that's a powerful statement. And again, we just take it for granted. Like, you literally can't do those things without words. Can you imagine life without words? 
Even someone who is mute has words in his head, reads words. Life is processed through words. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death. Well, such a powerful, powerful verse. Because we don't live our daily lives thinking of that. How our words have the power of life and death. We can create, rule, and bless through words for ourselves only. And if we do so, then it will bring death. Or we can create, rule, and bless through our words for God and for others and will bring life. And so it must make us ask that question, do our words bring life or death? Now we're looking at the ninth commandment, right? Do not um, bear false witness against your neighbor. So clearly it suggests that false words, there's power to false words. And so again, we stay in Genesis, Genesis 3.1. We look at the temptation that the serpent brought to humankind. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, so notice, right? Notice how Satan, as represented by the serpent in this Genesis account, accomplishes this first temptation of mankind by calling into question the truthfulness of what God had said to Adam and Eve. Satan is testifying falsely against God. He's lying about God. But in calling into question God's word, Satan is also calling into question God's character. God's being, God's love. And I wonder again for ourselves, what what are some lies that people feel justified telling but often ends up being a reflection of a character issue in a person just like it was for Satan here? And it makes me think of um, this movie that, it's oldish but well-known, Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire stars Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire is like this big shot sports agent, but he, he kind of has this aha moment of like, I can't just keep being in this, you know, big sports agency that treats these athletes like products. You know, I really want to give attention to my athletes. And so he quits um, his big firm and he goes, starts his own and, and he has one client because all his clients leave him. And so he has this one guy that he has a, a future quarterback prospect that he's trying to sign. And this, this one guy, if he signs him, he's going to make it. His firm's going to make it. It's going to be okay. And um, this, this, this guy's name, this quarterback's name is Cushman. And his dad's name is Matt Cushman. So Jerry Maguire flies to go see Matt Cushman and his son to try to make sure he can sign this deal, right? And they're talking about, you know, where they want to play and Jerry Maguire's trying, you know, trying to get, trying to sign this contract. And Matt Cushman, the dad, again, says, says this to Jerry. You know I don't do contracts, but what you do have is my word, and it's stronger than oak. You know, and this is heartwarming handshake, you know, big hearty handshake right there. And Jerry Maguire says, okay, I got this. Meanwhile, he has to then go and he has to go to his one client, Cuba Gooding Jr. is who plays this one client and he tries to, to work um, this event that they're at with, with, um, with Cuba Gooding Jr. But what happens then is Matt Cushman and his son get talked out of a contract 
with Jerry Maguire. And there's a rival sports agent, Bob Sugar, who freely lies to get what he wants and managed to, you know, sow all kinds of lies about Matt Cushman. And he managed to, uh, about, I'm sorry, about Jerry Maguire. And he managed to steal Cushman from Jerry Maguire. And Jerry Maguire faces Matt Cushman after... Um, after he finds out that his son, uh, that that Cushman had signed with Bob Sugar, and Cushman says this to Jerry Maguire, he says, "I signed with Sugar while you with that black fellow." So this whole like, my word is stronger than oak, apparently wasn't so true. And his word, his words then at the end really reflect that there was a character issue there for him. And he broke his word because of the racism in his heart. Our false words reflect something in us. It's very easy for us to justify our false words. Sometimes they're overt. Sometimes they are subtle. And sometimes we don't even realize that they reflect something deeper in us, some character issue. Proverbs 25:18 says this, like a club or sword or sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against the neighbor. Again, the Proverbs bringing home the power of our words. And so scripture certainly affirms the, the power of false words and how they can harm like a weapon. Theologian John Frame says this about this commandment. What then is a lie, right? So... What is a lie? Let's def- try to define a lie. I would, he says, not I, he says this. I would say that a lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him. It is, it is a false witness against a neighbor that, that, excludes, that excludes untruths that come from edifying devices, honest mistakes, honest fiction, games, magic tricks, and for the most part, jokes. I love how he covers all his bases there. So again, when we look at this narrow definition of the commandment, you know, we've again looked, we've, we've done this throughout the series. We looked at the narrow definition, then we look at the broader definition. This narrow definition from Frame's definition reminds us that this commandment is ultimately, again, relational. And this might seem obvious to say this, but when we talk about not lying, we often think of it first abstractly, then relationally. But the commandments are always relational. And even the way this is framed, this commandment, the commandment is not don't lie or no lying. The commandment is do not bear false testimony against your neighbor. It's like God saying, in case you forgot that lying is relational, let me put it this way. It's always relational. It's always involves at least two parties. It's not just lying about them. If you, if you could hear John Frame's definition here, it's not just lying about them, it's lying in such a way that it hurts others. So it's important, again, to say that truth is not just some abstraction that even God is bound to. Now, some Western thought and Greek thought have taught us that, that there's this truth that God is bound to as well, that we are bound to as humans, but God is bound to as well. There's this truth that is bigger than God. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches that God is truth. God is what defines truth. And so when we say that, we remember again, truth 
is always relational. It's not just about whether you're abstractly telling a truth or a lie. It's about truth in relationship. Truth in relationship with God. Truth in relationship with others. And so again, a lie is, is deceiving in such a way that thoughtlessly brings hurt to another. And it, it's an important distinction to make, right? Okay? I don't know if you've ever come across this in your own conscience. You're trying to surprise someone for their birthday. You're lying through your teeth left and right, trying to deceive them so that you can surprise them. And maybe you had a moment, you're like, God, is this okay? I've told like 20 lies today to try to throw them off the path. And I would say, it's fine. Like you're trying to surprise them and love them. Like, don't worry about it. Like God knows your heart. And that's a silly example, right? A serious example would be from World War II. When people were trying to hide Jews from Nazis. Nazis come to your door, knock on your door. You got any Jews in there? Oh yeah, they're right back. I'm sorry, I was hiding them. I didn't want you to kill them. Like, that would be stupid truth telling, right? You should lie so that the Nazis don't kill the Jews. God would not want you to be like, oh, I must be truthful. I'm going to give up these people in the name of Jesus. It's not about following abstractly a truth or a falsehood. And it's scary to say this because there's a danger in saying that truth is relational and situational. Because as humans, as broken humans, we are very good at justifying deception. White lies, right? Things we put in our category of things we say as white lies. Well, I I meant well. I had good intentions. So there's always that tension. But our white lies said, told out of good intentions are things that we have to be very careful about because we're very good at justifying deception. And often our white lies are told not so much out of goodness, but out of fear of being found out or fear of having to face consequences of the lies we have told or the deception that we had done. And Tim Keller makes this really great point in his sermon on this commandment where he talks about how the Ten Commandments specifically show us who we are as as image bearers, right? They are commands that neither animals or objects can follow, They are distinctly for human beings. And they show us our design again. And so when we do not follow God's command, we in fact dehumanize ourselves and the people around us that are affected by our actions. And again, this point emphasizes, again, that deception and lying always has at least two parties involved and affects those relationships between them. So we've talked kind of about a narrow definition of this commandment. So let's take a look at a broader look at um, this commandment about how we can deceive in a broader sense in our lives. I think ever since 
sin has entered the world, we as human beings have been prone to wear masks. And kind of on the, along the lines of this, I'm going to pass out something that I meant to put on the chairs. But if I'm going to get Fred and Carrie to help. I have 20 copies here, so maybe one per row. And then you guys can just pass it back and forth. A little piece of artwork that I just thought was fun to help explore this idea of masks that we wear. So this piece of artwork that you see coming around, and feel free to pass it back and forth and take second looks at it. It's by a French expressionist painter from the 19th century named Georges Rouault. He's well known in his own right, but if you haven't heard of him, he is a contemporary with Matisse and is credited with significantly influencing Van Gogh and his work. And he has a famous series, which this is one of, called uh, Miserere. And one of the pieces, which is this one, is called Who Does Not Put On Makeup? Or, it's actually translated in various ways, Who Does Not Put On Makeup? Or Who Does Not Put On a Mask? Or, as it's titled here, Who Does Not Frown? And he did, interestingly, often have a, a theme of clowns in his work. And most of his work was a critique on society, and the thing that he was most interested on, on uh, expressing about was about human nature. And he wrote um, earlier, before this, he painted this, <clears throat> but I think through which he drew this inspiration to paint this. He says, one day I noticed how when a beautiful day turns to evening, the first star shines out in the sky. It, is, it moved me deeply, I don't know why, and it marked the beginning of poetry in my life. A gypsy caravan halted at the side of the road, a weary old horse nibbling stunted grasses, an old clown patching his costume. That was how it began. We all wear a spangled dress of some sort, but if someone catches us with the spangles off as I caught that old clown, oh, the infinite pity of it. Let me read that last part again. We all wear a spangled dress of some sort, but if someone catches us with the spangles off, as I caught that old clown, oh, the infinite pity of it. He's saying we all wear masks. Oh, but the great pity of someone catches us with our masks down. If they see the real us. And I'm not saying, I don't think he's saying, let's not show our truth selves. I think he's saying we're so afraid of showing who we are. We all wear masks of some kind, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We're not even aware that we're doing things, that we're hiding specific things about ourselves, about our character. Things that we fear that if we reveal or if it's discovered, we might at best be found out as imposters or posers or fakers, or at worst, to be found completely unacceptable or to be cut out or to be ostracized. I know for those of you who have been through PhD programs how um, it's common to talk about the imposter syndrome where you feel like you're the only one who's really not supposed to be in the program. Or maybe it's med school, you feel that as well. Like, I, I, how is it all these other super bright people are making it, but you know, I just don't feel like I can. Right? These kinds of fears that we have to be found out to be imposters or posers. And when that much is at stake, we think, surely, we are justified in putting on the mask. We're justified in deceiving. 
I'm, I feel like I can hear the questions in your head. You're thinking already, but am I just supposed to just share everything with everyone, my deepest, darkest secrets? Is that what God calls me to do? No, of course not. We must be wise, nonetheless. We must find the people that are safe, that we feel like aren't going to use the things that we share against us. But if our commitment to safety is so great that our spouses, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our closest friends, our pastors are also people we can't take our masks off for, then we reveal that our greatest commitment then is to self-protection, to protecting that mask that we wear. And when we do that, intentionally or not, we hurt ourselves, we hurt the people around us, and we hurt our relationship with God. I love this quote by Christian author and Western seminary professor Chuck DeGroat. He's talking about pastors, which probably is why I relate to it, but I think you can put it in any realm and it would work. We learn to live out of a false self early on and it is nurtured in seminary. Seminary, seminary failures are condemned to lesser ministries, working with the poor or in hospice or in a part-time rural setting. The really sexy pastors get the good gigs and get profiled in their seminary magazine cover. They learn to iron their clothes by themselves and learn to smile in a way that make old women melt. We all, to some extent, experience right how our personality and our behavior influence our acceptability in our workplace or in our relationships. And, you know, I think of politicians as maybe having some of the greatest pressure to, to have it together in that sense because they're such public figures. Their lives are lived under a microscope for the, the media and the world to tear apart and consume and exploit. I mean, I watched my father go through that as, as a politician, and I felt like he had it relatively easy, but there are certainly some bad PR days. I remember when New Jersey Governor... Chris Christie was running for president, and it seemed ridiculous to me the amount of negative attention his weight got. It was like people were saying, how can we possibly vote in an overweight president? And it's just like, what does that have to do with anything about running a country? Now, I know you could make arguments for it, but relatively speaking, it really doesn't matter. But I think even politicians get to hide behind the public-private kind of divide. We can make the argument, as long as it doesn't affect his job, it's fine. And pastors don't get to hide behind that. Pastors are supposed to have this perfect union of the public and private, men of complete integrity. And so, you know, pastors, as public figures, live under that great pressure as well. And that pressure can encourage pastors to live under false expectations rather than live transparently before others. And I know for myself, I never wanted to become a pastor who was one thing in public and another thing at home. And it's it's a hard thing to live with because I I know I know there are things that that there's a dissonance between those two, and that's something that I always ask God to continue to work on in my life. 
And even saying this out loud, it makes me wonder, will, will you, the congregation, accept what I'm saying? Will it be okay for me to be transparent in this way? Chuck DeGroat continues to say this. In seminary, you can feel the jockeying and the coveting of those with extraordinary gifts. I remember there was this guy that I was in seminary with. It was like, he was like Kendall. He looked like Kendall. He was super intellectual. He was the guy that like read systematic theology for bedtime reading. And just, you know, super good looking guy. Per- like literally perfect hair. And I just remember the amount of talk of essentially coveting what this guy was. Anyway, that's who I thought of as I said this. The not as bright, not as eloquent, not as good looking, not as smooth get passed over no matter how godly they are. In fact, we don't even stop long enough to find out how godly they are. I mean, this is in the realm of seminary and pastors and ministry, but you could translate that too into your own life, into your own field, into the pressure that you feel to be a certain way because of your industry, because of your relationships. So another way to talk about those masks we wear is to talk about the false self which in each of us is created. And that's just often a a sinful, natural part of life. That the false self in each of us is created early on when we are sinned against. And we, in response to being sinned against, respond sinfully as well. And then create these patterns of relating to the world that is not really who God wants us to be, intends us to be, has designed us to be, not our true self. Yet we continue to live in that way, in that false self, with those masks, with that pattern, because it feels safer than just being who we really are, who God has made us. The more we live out of that false self, the less we are able to truly love God and love others because the commitment in life then is to protecting that self, that false self. And so when we continue to surrender to God, to repent of our brokenness and sins, to die to ourselves and to turn to Christ and his filling and his righteousness and his grace and his forgiveness, That is when we most truly become who God has created us to be. I continue to pray that for myself, to pray that for us as a church, that that God would continue to do that work in us, to set us free from the false selves in which we live out of, the masks that we wear, and to live out of the true self with which God has designed us and created us, to live with that wholeness and integrity that we long for, to live out of that desire for truth in the way that we portray ourselves, speak of ourselves, that we will love God and others rather than primarily protect ourselves, that our life, our work, our relationship, our ministry will not be about our egos, but be about faithfulness to God who saves and redeems us. It's really just another way of saying God's continuing work of sanctification in our lives. To die more and more and to sin and to live more and more into righteousness as the catechism says in Westminster. 
dying more and more to the false self, living more and more into the true self. So what masks do you wear is the simple question. And how do those masks affect you and the people around you? We're not left to ourselves to deal with that. We're in good hands. And that there's power to God's redeeming and affirming words. These are two of most cherished passages to me. And I think they speak in one sense to different parts of us, or you could say to different personalities. But Matthew 3.17 says this, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. These words are God the Father speaking to Jesus. It's just saying his son is his beloved. But these words are rightly ours through faith in Jesus. Because we are in Christ, God the Father can also say these words to us. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Those words are for you as well through faith in Christ. And for those of you who deeply long for the love of Christ, for the love of anyone, these are powerful words that speak to the soul. But Matthew 25, 21 says this, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful With a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. There are some of us in here like, love, I don't need that. I want respect. And I think this verse says, through faith in Christ, God says, respect to you, faithful servant. You have accomplished good things in my name. I think we all long for love and respect in the end. Some more one thing than the other. But we long to hear these words from God. Words that show that we are accepted, that we are delighted in, that we are approved of. Words of intimacy and love and respect. We long to hear that from anyone. (laughs) Not just God, but of course God's word is most powerful. Donald Miller has a book called Searching for God Knows uh, Searching for God Knows What and I really think he spends a whole book I mean it's a lot of observing about life he's talking about the sinful system that we live in this world where we're trying to jockey ourselves to be in a higher position than others and in all kinds of ways and all kinds of things and how outside voices matter to us so much And how that jockeying just shows that we care so much about outside voices and what they have to say. And he really ends the book with this point that I'm about to read to you. That the only voice that matters is our creator's voice. But what we really need is God. What we really need is somebody who loves us so much that we don't worry about death. 
about our hair thinning, about drivers pulling out in front of us on the road, about whether people are rich or poor, good looking or ugly, about whether we feel lonely, about whether or not we are wearing clothes. We need this. We need this so we can love other people purely and not for selfish gain. We need this so we can stop kicking ourselves around. We need this so we can lose all self-awareness and find ourselves for the first time, not by realizing some dream, but by being told who we are by the only being who has the authority to know. By that, I mean the creator. I think we can all relate on some level that outside voices matter. People's opinion matter. But there's one voice, one person's word that matters infinitely more than anyone else's. That is our creator and our redeemer's voice. The one who says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The one who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come share in the master's happiness. There's power to God's affirming and redeeming voice in our lives. And the gospel means for us to turn to that voice again and again in our dark hours when we doubt his love, when we doubt his delight in who we are. And it is out of that place then that we can give to the world, that we can offer our words of affirmation to those who are in need. There's great power to our words. Ephesians 4 says this, Paul says this, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. So difficult. But when we can speak the truth in love, then we speak in the power of God's affirming voice to the people around us. Tim Keller says, God does not want us to continue speaking truth lovelessly, which some of us are really good at, or loving people without truth, which some of us are really good at. You tend to be one or the other. He says, truth without love isn't really truth because it is not not for the neighbor. Please hear that. Truth without love isn't really truth because it is not for the neighbor. It brings us back again to how truth is always relational. We can also say, on the other hand, love without truth is toothless sentimentality that cannot deal with the brokenness of this world. If we are to deeply and boldly love the people around us, then we, we must through the power of God in our life, through the power of God's affirming, loving voice in our life, to marry strength and tenderness, to speak truth with love into the people around us. Not just to speak truth harshly or just to love without truth, but to marry truth and love in our words to others, to bring the affirmation of God's love, to bring our affirmation into people's lives, but to challenge the brokenness that we see all around us. And we have to remember, of course, that when we, we dare to do that, then we must also remember that we are to allow others to speak into us. If we are to point out the speck 
of dust in someone's eye, then we better allow someone to point out the plank of wood in ours. God calls us to speak in the power of our words, empowered by his word in our life that tells us we are his beloved, that we are his creation, that we are here for his purpose. Let us pray.